Hi there, welcome to the Law and Business Podcast. I'm joined with the lovely, beautiful, smart, intelligent Michelle Carter. How you doing? I am great. Thanks for having me again. Anytime. So I'm going to let you kick it off because this topic was kind of uh, your your idea, wasn't it? In, indeed it was. I think today we're going to be talking about the five things as a blogger that can get you sued. And I'm sure there's more than five now that I think about it, but we've got five in mind, don't we? Well, well, you're the attorney, so <laughs> you you would know better than any. But but uh, I I think that we have both found that there are are five common mistakes that bloggers okay. make that uh, will tend to get them in hot water. If not right away, then in time, because eventually they will find you and catch up with you. We'll go with that. All right. <laughs> I just I just to 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 me. And and I'll say this as a caveat to the show topic is that um, you know we're giving you know five tips or five things to be wary of, but ultimately there's always more than that, and and these are five main ideas and five main thoughts. But but anybody out there who has a blog in order to make money, in order to advertise, in order to um, you know keep you know, keep business going. There's just more than than this five, and and that would, I think be the only caveat that I have. Fair enough. So number one on our list of five things that can get you sued as a blogger is naming your blog after another business. Some examples that come to mind are IKEA, IKEA Hacks. Hacker. Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, WT Forever Twenty One. That's a good one. Uh, Kindle Fire Department. One of my favorites of all time is Regretsy. Right. And Regretsy's not around anymore. But No, April has moved on, but it was a great <laughs> blog while it lasted. So, so why is it that naming your blog after another business could get you sued? Well, for a lot of these businesses, obviously the business name is, is a trademark. And let me take a step back because I know not... Everybody listening has been listening since episode one. But a trademark is a business name, a business uh, slogan, a logo that relates back to a business. Usually a business, people can own trademarks. But it basically identifies the source of goods and services and the quality of those goods and services. So something like IKEA, you think of... Swedish furniture. There, there you go. Swedish furniture. That's made in China. Right. Okay. Isn't it all? <laughs> but the idea of, of, of more than just Swedish furniture is, I would say, modular furniture. Sure. Modern furniture. Um, and and what a, a website like, Ike, was it Ikea, Hacker, Ikea mm-hmm. Hackers dot net um, did... And I'm not sure, I'm still not sure why you would want to do this, but they basically had their own um, ways of putting together IKEA furniture so that you could put together your bookshelf as a a desk Mm -hmm. instead. Well, they had a lot of different projects, you know, like they had one one where you could buy an end table and make a guitar out of it. Um, (laughs) They have, it's, you know... As, as far as How could you want to, why not? <laughs> you know, honestly, it maybe it's. I I know I read at least one comment where people said it was cheaper to buy IKEA furniture than it was to go to your local home improvement store and buy wood. So, and it's already cut, it's already polished, it's already finished. I mean, there there are a lot of different projects. We sh- certainly can't fault them for their creativity. I wouldn't want to do anything. <laughs> but, but, okay, y- your opinions on this website aside, the, the fact is it was a very popular the website. Fa- the fact they is, had a lot of readers. Yes, absolutely. And the delineation here as to why IKEA decided to um, stay away from a lawsuit and then they went to, to, to start the trademark infringement suit came because ikeahackers.net started to take in advertising because of course having um, a website that gets a lot of hits requires server space requires an expense 
especially when you're storing all of that. So at the very least, I wanted to cover those expenses, if not make money, and and really turn turn it into a business. Sure. And frankly, I think all of us would love to do that with a blog. In this particular case, IKEA took umbrage to the selling of advertising, and that's when IKEA started the trademark infringement suit. Sure, because prior to that, it was just a hobby, a, a big a fan, you know, being an aficionado of their thing. But once they started taking in advertising, now it's a business. And what's the difference? Exactly. No, really, what's the difference? Because because I want you to think about this. Because you're not the lawyer here, but but I want you to think about this. If if that's the true delineation, then is is using IKEA beforehand acceptable, and then and then once you collect money, using IKEA after that is not acceptable. Does that make any sense to you whatsoever? Well, no. I would assume that if it's an infringement, it's an infringement regardless of whether it's a hobby or a business. It's just a matter of when. When do you become a big enough fish for IKEA to care? <laughs> to start frying, yes. Exactly. And 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 I would say that's that's exactly that's exactly the correct answer is that it's not that was not a legal issue, that was more of a practical issue. Mm-hmm. Right. Trademark infringement requires the use of goods and services, I mean of the of the name logo, whatever that mark is on other goods and services, so that consumers are likely to confuse the two, you know, companies, the two products, the two sets of goods or services. Sure. I'd argue that IKEA is not in the business of selling their products to be used in another manner, so that their end tables aren't meant to be used as a guitar, so that their, uh, you know, uh, bookshelves are not meant to be used as desks or something to that effect. So that really, people who are going to IKEA Hackers, whether or not IKEA Hackers is getting um, any money from advertising, people really aren't all that confused. They're going to IKEAHackers.net for for a reason. Sure. And that purpose is to do something else to IKEA furniture. So I'd argue that there really isn't a likelihood of confusion here. For that particular reason. No, if that, anything, I would say that it's something that supports their brand. Like, uh, their their marketing part department should be sad that they didn't come up with it first. Well, I, <laughs> no, no business is going to ever, um, you know, think that way. I disagree. Okay. How many times do you see food products offered with recipes for things that you would never think about cooking with them? What do you mean? Um... Like when Heinz Ketchup says, have you ever thought about using Heinz Ketchup in these four dishes? Or you get Triscuit crackers and they say, use them this way. And But, but, but by but giving that's... me additional ways to use the product, I'm encouraged to buy more, even though if th- that yeah, may not necessarily but, but be the hold, thing that but, I'm... But here's why, here's why it's not analogous. Because you're talking about food, and I can put Heinz Ketchup on a hot dog, on a hamburger, or on ice cream, and I don't necessarily have to mention that it's an Oscar Mayer hot dog, that it's a McDonald's uh, hamburger, or that it's Breyer's ice cream. Why, would I, why did that even, thought even come from for me? To, to be absurd is, is why. Mm-hmm. Whereas here, IKEA Hackers is all about going to IKEA, mm-hmm. buying something from IKEA, opening it up, and putting it together in a way that, that the directions don't, don't matter. So from IKEA's standpoint, the two situations are not necessarily analogous. And that if you're going to um, IKEAHackers.net, you're looking to ultimately deface <laughs> IKEA products, which of course you're allowed to do once you have it, you know, mm-hmm. once you've bought it anyway. So here I'd say, ultimately, I, I don't really think that there is a likelihood of confusion between the two, but... That if you're naming your blog after somebody else's trademark, it's going you're going to find yourself in some level of hot water, whether it's just a cease and desist letter or a full blown trademark infringement suit. You're going to find that there's going to be an issue. So it's it's not that they're 
if they were to rename the blog Swedish Furniture Hacker and continue to doing business as normal, everything would be fine. It's just the use of the word IKEA that's the problem. I'm a lawyer. I'm going to be hesitant to use the phrase everything's going to be fine. (laughs) Um, But there are ways to structure that blog. There there are ways to structure that. To not get sued. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And I think that's, that's, I think the lesson. Although, look, let's start here. I'm fully acknowledging IKEA hackers, Regretsy, and WT Forever 21 certainly wouldn't necessarily have the following if it were, you know, Swedish furniture hackers. Of course. You know, um, you know, you know, people make make terrible stuff and sell it. <laughs> and, you, you know, this fashion is is utterly ridiculous. You know, I, 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 I get it. I get it completely that having that tie in. But on the same token, that's really a part of trademark infringement is that your your piggy your business is piggybacking off of somebody else's business. Of course. We also have something that we call trademark dilution. And trademark dilution is about famous trademarks. Now now first off, a, a company's trademark has to be declared famous by by a court in order to 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 be able to claim trademark dilution, but of course it seems to be a do so rigor. Twitter fame and actual legal fame are two different <laughs> animals. Fame is fleeting. <laughs> fame is very very fleeting, and fame doesn't even uh, is even a higher level than hey we have a lot of sales. Okay, you know I I was involved in a lawsuit where the plaintiff said well we have three hundred million dollars in sales and our advertising budget is gigantic i'm not even allowed to say the number but it was mm-hmm. gigantic i don't even remember the number <laughs> but it was gigantic you know so the court said okay 300 million dollars of sales a year is highly impressive guess what it's not famous a famous trademark has to affect the average consumer in such a way and in this particular case, I, I always go with McDonald's because it's a very classically uh, famous trademark. Everybody understands McDonald's uh, or the MC portion and what it what it signifies. So if you're looking at t- writing a blog that specifically targets a company whose trademarks are famous, mm-hmm. then you really have have mm-hmm. another reason not to you know name your blog after that company because it may be trademark infringement but it also may be trademark dilution as well mm-hmm. if your mark if your blog excuse me is going to harm the value of of one of those other and and i think that's how wtf uh you know wt forever, <laughs> forever 21, 21. <laughs> got, got in trouble was because a lot of their posts especially when they were starting out were showing instances of you know, items from that store that were remarkably similar to items that were being sold in other retailers that were being sold on Etsy, you know, images that may have been borrowed. Uh, They were not very kind to that chain when they first started out. And that's probably how they got on the radar. Well, I mean, that's getting on the radar to begin with, but I don't, I don't, you know, what's being, what that blog did is different than the name itself, Mm -hmm. you know? And so, you know, and and we can we'll talk a little bit about defamation a little later on, but I would say a lot of the things that that it was doing was probably claimed to be defamation, which is totally different than thinking about how to name the blog, sure. Which which is you know, or even how to talk about a company in a blog. And I will say this: one of your, you know, first off, in the United States, we have the First Amendment, and the First Amendment. Um, allows for free speech and this is you know and sometimes there's commercial speech which is less protected than political speech and so certainly this is commercial speech here as well and you're still allowed to opine and discuss facts about another company so so you can do that and then we have in trademark law what's called nominative use and you can name a trademark if the only way that you're going to be talking about it is by naming the trademark. And if you're a, a product reviewer, the only thing that you're going to be able to say is, I bought an iPhone. 
you know, I bought a Samsung Galaxy phone, um, or I'm eating, you know, Hershey chocolate, or, or you know, whatever it is. You still the only way that you can do it is by naming the product, right? So, so you have to 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 be wary that it's okay to name products, and then is that the reason why that your business exists? If it is, then you're going to 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 probably begin to fall over that trademark infringement line. But but there is don't don't get me wrong, it's a very very fine line between nominative use and naming your you know, naming your blog or your business after another company. Sure. And and then what you're and then what you're allowed to say in it, we'll we'll talk about that a little later. But but here it's just about naming it as and and what to look out for in this particular section. Got it. The the other thing that I I did want to point out is that um there was a card comparison site, and let me see if I can find it. That was um, that was sued as well for showing rates and fees of various different credit cards. And part of the issue was was you know trademark infringement. But I, I will say this: a lot of bigger businesses are being overprotective today. And if you're a smaller business, if you're a blogger, and you're going to be using companies' names, I'm not sitting here saying don't do that, because that that has a chilling effect on speech, and we don't want that. You know. On the same token, be wary that bigger companies are protecting their intellectual property much more than ever before. Those companies are finding where that intellectual property is being used more than ever before. And they're getting better at it every day. Yes. So, yeah, you may receive a cease and desist letter if you're naming other companies in it. And, you know, I would say for a lot of bloggers, if you're going to be talking about other companies, if you're going to be reviewing products, make sure there's somebody in your back pocket there who can give you a hand in making sure that your use of other companies' trademarks is within nominative use and also within the First Amendment of the Constitution. Makes a lot of sense. I, I do my best to, to, to make a lot of sense. And that's why you get paid the big bucks. So let's go on to <laughs> number two in the list of, of things that are frequently getting bloggers sued. Use of pictures owned by others. I've had clients that have um, received fun copyright infringement uh, cease and desist letters. Yes, this isn't a problem limited to bloggers by any no, stretch. No, And usually what a lot of people are complaining about these days are, are Getty images. Mm-hmm. Meaning that Getty images sends a letter that says you're using our photograph in your website and... Here's the here's the use of it in the in the website. Here's our uh, registration copyright registration of it. Here's how it appears in our stock photo catalog, and here's the typical licensing rate. If you pay us this, and we'll go away. <laughs> you know, so you basically are turning copyright infringement into a license, and a lot of people are not too thrilled <laughs> with that. And the fact remains that under copyright law, and this isn't even the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, because I'll talk about that in a bit, but under copyright law, the copyright owner is the one who's allowed to make copies, to sell copies, to publicly perform copies, to license copies. And I realize that online, it's really easy to right-click, save it, (laughs) and then when you're, you know, posting... Uh, your own, you know, web page to put it, you know, on the page. Well, sure, because those images are free and everything on the internet is free. <laughs> well, look, I, I, I'm, I'm going to try to not be too cynical <laughs> because I realize that a lot of people are used to the free, free, free thing. But and the answer, the problem with that. But the problem with that is that, right, you can't just take. And as a content creator... I hope that, that a lot of bloggers can put themselves on the other side of that equation as well. That they wouldn't want their work necessarily taken and put elsewhere without 
proper payment. Of course. Yeah. And it's not credit. You know, credit is is nice, but that's all it is, is credit. It's not a license. It's not a sale. It's not a purchase. And in this, you know, in these particular cases, you're going to get a cease and desist letter if you're using somebody else's image. And the reason why the Digital Millennium Copyright Act doesn't protect you is the DMCA is meant for others. So that if your website is a user-generated website, in other words, the content comes from the users. Think social media, Facebook, Twitter, Pinterest, Mm -hmm. Instagram. The pictures that are posted, if they violate traditional copyright um, you know, philosophies, such as copyright infringement, then the owner of the website has to receive the cease and desist letter before the owner of the website is sued. Okay. Yes, for, co- for basically what, what would be contributory copyright in- infringement. So in this particular instance, it is the blogger's own website, mm-hmm. A, there's the blogger's own, you know, ability to take the picture and put it on there. And and so, see, it's the blogger's own liability. Sure. So the a blogger needs to really make sure that a picture that is used is either properly licensed or original. Right. And under properly licensing a picture... A lot of stock, um, a lot of stock photograph companies have licenses, and you can easily um, license that particular picture, or license a whole group of pictures. Right. And you can pay the royalty rate, and that's not really going to be an issue. Or if you need, you know, a photograph, you know, you, you could probably work a deal out with with photographers to create bunches of photos that um, can work for this particular use. And so it's um, not much of an issue to actually create something. Or C, C, get your camera, (laughs) get your phone camera, go take photos. And this way, they're your photographs. And then there's no question about who owns them. None whatsoever. So I, I would say, I would say, yeah, avoid using somebody else's um, pictures, and it's always good advice. And always assume that it's that that somebody's copyright is registered, and that if you're going to use somebody else's picture, you'll get a cease and desist letter. And you know, also be reasonably careful about it as well. You know, there I've I've read multiple articles about people that were using Creative Commons images that they got. Um, not realizing that the user had uploaded a copyrighted image. You know, the other issue with Creative and Commons... you, as the person who is using that image, are still responsible for it, even though you thought... Uh, always, but... And, and I think people have to pay close attention to the kind of license that they're, they're getting. Um, you know, some licenses always. allow you to use an image once, and that's it. Some li- images allow you to use that image however you'd like forever. Um, some licenses are restrictive, so you can use it on a blog, but you can't use it in, say, a magazine. Uh, so it's really important for people to pay attention to to what they're using. Uh, I've also heard it suggested that uh, once you get an, an image, that you also save a screen cap of the license because it's not uncommon for a photographer to license an image to a website like stockphotography.com or iPhoto or whatever. Uh, for use and then sell it to someone like Getty five years down the line. And if Getty comes after you, you need to prove that you had that license when you first acquired the picture. Well, and, and, and I think and I think what you need to do, I think what has to happen at that point is um, an understanding of the agreement at that mm-hmm. point. Because if, um, if a photographer has licensed uh, a photograph and then wants to sell his or her entire portfolio or collection to Getty, then, you know, if, if there's an ongoing business relationship, the licensee needs to know that. Right. 
And and there has to still always be an open level of communication between the licensee and the licensor photographer. Mm-hmm. You know, so so you know if Getty is you know if Getty then buys the catalog and Getty sends um, a cease and desist letter, then there's a level of communication there that that's broken down. And and but but the point is the blogger alone is responsible. You're not going to get a letter from from you know, Fotalia saying, hey, by the way, we sold that image. You're no longer licensed. You you alone are responsible for what that, goes on your property. That's true. But but again, I would say if you're the licensee, you should understand who your licensor is. Mm-hmm. And if the licensor, you know, changes hands, I, I mean, sure. you, should, you should know that from the very beginning that, that somebody's selling that picture. You really should. All right, so let's go on to the third most common reason bloggers manage to get themselves sued, and that is picture, using pictures of people without their permission. You know, this this is from from a practical standpoint. This is related to what we were just talking about. From a legal standpoint, it's actually not because we're now into what we call state state rights of privacy and publicity. But quite often, people are using a photograph. And a photograph can have other rights as, you know, the content of the photograph. Mm -hmm. So if there's a a photograph of a company's trademark, then you have a copyright issue on the photograph itself. And you might have a trademark issue on the trademark in the photograph. So in this particular case, you may have the copyright issues that we were just talking about. If the the photograph is not an original photograph or isn't licensed properly. Mm -hmm. But now, because it's a person's image, likeness, uh, sometimes name, uh, depending on which state you're in. Now, the uh, person's right of privacy or publicity, again, depending on what state you're in, is infringed. And that's something a lot of bloggers don't really think about because for a lot of pictures it's just it's just not thought of like oh i can take a picture of somebody Mm -hmm. down the street and sometimes that's okay um sometimes you can take a picture and it's not okay you know that that picture of somebody walking down the street i think do you have an example of of well i think the i think the most uh recent case that fits into people's memory it might be katherine heigl who sued uh the pharmacy the new york city pharmacy Dwayne reed right because because Dwayne reed's like new york city north jersey and that's about I think so. It, right. Like, they, they still haven't, like... Sorry to the rest of you who haven't experienced a Dwayne Reed. Yeah, they're like every other pharmacy. And <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. The one in Brooklyn, you can get beer and a manicure. and Really? You can get a manicure? It's a destination now. I didn't know that. Because I don't get manicures. <laughs> I'm, uh, I just... Yeah, not my thing. Anyway, uh, <laughs> you get more manicures than I do, right? Probably. I would hope so. So in in this particular uh, instance, Catherine Heigl was uh, pictured coming out of a Dwayne Reed and carrying bags, uh, you know, branded Dwayne Reed bags. And of course, Dwayne Reed uh, posted a tweet with, you know, with that. And and I think what makes that particular case um, so blatant is that it was Dwayne Reed showing a picture of a celebrity that's not... In, and who's not and paid endorsing. to endorse uh, Dwayne Reed. So it's it's a blatant advertisement. Mm-hmm. So so that particular instance is very very blatant on the on on using somebody's image. Sure. I would say for a lot of bloggers it's probably not going to be so blatant. Now, it might be uh, and I've certainly have seen this the picture of the blogger, you know, who is at a party and at a sponsored party, and there were a couple celebrities there, and so they take the picture and they put it on. So the question is then, you know, does that create an endorsement of the blog? Is the blog making money? So therefore, is is that the kind of instance that um, a, a celebrity would be paid for? On the sure. same token, for um, more private citizens, the you know, is there even a right for you know? anybody to take the picture 
and and music. So that image and likeness, it always is going to revolve around. Is this an endorsement? Is this commercial speech? Is this something other than artistic? So, for example, if if you're if somebody's walking down the street, I take the picture and then I just sell the picture. I will tell you in New York <clears throat> that is perfectly acceptable as um, somebody not having a right to privacy because somebody's just on the street now. You take that picture and you say, hey, this person's wearing a, you know, X brand baseball cap. Look how great it is. General people love it. Now you're dealing with the commercial speech and the rights of privacy and publicity again being invoked because that's an endorsement and people are usually paid for that particular endorsement. Sure. So I'd say that a lot of bloggers need to be wary about somebody's image if there's one advice we always give to clients is do you have this person's permission right is it do you have the permission is it written did you pay for it and and the real key are one and two you know if you had to pay somebody for their permission that's acceptable but do you have permission and is it written if if there are people's images and likenesses appearing get permission and if it's and if it's something that's not a part of the stock photography agreement or if it's something that that's just doesn't exist that then it has to be taken off or you have to get permission of those mm-hmm. people and most stock photography websites will have a line where it will show whether there a model release exists or does not exist and i would say stay away from the ones where it doesn't exist because <laughs> you just don't know yeah I, I agree completely what else do we have on the all right, number list. four on the list of ways that bloggers <laughs> manage to get themselves sued: use of others' music. Well, this legally and this is so common. Yes, um, legally, this is copyright infringement. So, a lot of what we were talking about with photographs works for music, mm-hmm. and that is. I, I, I hate to use the phrase uncopyrighted music, but you've heard of the phrase before, right? Sure. And it's music that, I, I, I hate to say uncopyrighted because it's not really the case, but it's music that is allowed to be in the public domain because the people who wrote it have given away their copyrights. But that's not quite true either because a lot of people can can join these uncopyrighted music um, websites sure, and other groups. Sure, it's like stock photos except for music. Exactly. Thank you. In in we we have a recent YouTube blogger. Her name is Michelle Fan, and Michelle Fan was uh, excuse me is a makeup and self help uh, tutorial blogger. How how am I doing? You're doing well so far. Wonderful. Um, I I don't watch too many makeup tutorials. She's pretty popular. I can assure you of that. I I probably not with my particular personality set. Male lawyers are not her her target demographic. No. Yeah, yeah. Male lawyers with bachelors in computer science. Not. I don't think that's what she's. Targeting. Yeah, yeah. Who- so so what did she do? Well, she used songs, I guess, as intro and and outro music or as background music from um, a label called Ultra. And Ultra includes uh, Cascade and um, who who else is, is included in there? Well, Cascade is one. Cascade is one guy. If I find a list of others, I'll, I'll let you know. But... Um, the issue is, of course, that Ms. Fan has not um, licensed any of that. She's getting advertising revenue through YouTube. Of course. She's getting thousands upon thousands of views. She has 74,000 subscribers. That's really nice. Yes, YouTube it is. channel, 74,000 subscribers. So... Um, so you mean to tell me that if I run a business and I create a photo montage and I set that photo montage to a song by Dirk Bentley, <laughs> I can't just use that? No. But it's the internet and the internet is free. 
Okay, sarcasm aside. <laughs> <laughs> Dripping wet sarcasm aside. Yes. No, you can't. There has to be a license. And I will tell you that, um, I mean, I mean, YouTube has done a very good job at not taking down videos because they've worked out with ASCAP and BMI and CSAC a way to take advertising rev, a way to recognize what songs are being used and a way to take those royalties and, and move them over. Sure. So on one hand, I'm really surprised that this was not, this is not what happened here. Sure. And well, and another thing that YouTube has started doing is if they recognize, if their software recognizes copyrighted music, they will not la- allow you to upload that video in the first place. I actually had a video where I was using a an intro that I had hired out to somebody else and that somebody else used copyrighted right. music in the intro and I wasn't even able to upload that yeah. video. So they're getting much more savvy. Well, uh, you know, and like I said, the video the the ability to tell what music is in the background and transfer royalty money comes from the same mm-hmm. exact system. By the way, it was Dead Mouse, Cascade and Calvin Harris. Those are the those are some of the artists. Um, you're a big Calvin Harris fan, aren't you? Oh, huge. <laughs> um, I I would say that in these particular videos, I'm really surprised that this software system didn't happen. That either it wasn't blocked for uploading or the the advertising money just, just you know, changed hands in order to make happy um that didn't happen she's also been in business for quite a while so it could be that these were some of the older videos that were uploaded prior to that technology's existence but the point is she was using music that didn't belong to her and she got caught and now she is being sued one and a half million not going to be easy no it's not going to be easy because if there's no license and the music's there i mean again we go back to what is copyright infringement it's the unauthorized copy the unauthorized mm-hmm. public performance the unauthorized sale the unauthorized you know licensing it's it's something that's just not authorized by the copyright holder right and in this particular case if it's not there if that authorization is not does not exist then it's copyright infringement now we can take a bigger broader view and we can say in the bigger broader view we have examples of youtube use um, creating sales. And in that particular instance, I think we can agree that Michelle Fan's um, use of the music probably created fans and probably created sales. Sure. We, um, we have other examples. Um, there was a time when uh, Monty Python you know, was going after uh, fans for putting up their skits, even though those skits are... 50 years old at this point because that was the 60s sure you know um and monty python dvd sales went through the roof once they stopped doing that mm-hmm. so we have we have some examples and I, I know i have a third one sitting right here in my notes and oh disney's disney and frozen disney has not um beaten up everybody who is doing covers of let it go i can understand that yes but um and and really you know but they can um the point no well yes but but don't forget disney has kind of let this um let this go as an example and i i think we're all kind of they let it go that i can't believe (laughs) can't believe i did that I cannot believe I just did that. But anyway, (laughs) that was totally (laughs) accidental. But what they have decided to do is not not necessarily enforce every instance of it as a way to let that song continue to multiply. And the idea thinking that every parody, every, uh, you know, cover version out there one, the the Google YouTube software can handle any advertising monies that go back to them. And two, sure. it helps drive sales. Of course. Now, the, beauti- the beautiful thing about copyright law is that as an owner, you don't necessarily have to enforce it. Although, if you have to enforce it against somebody and you haven't been enforcing it, there might be an issue down the road of damages. Sure. Because... 
if it wasn't worth anything to you before, what's it worth to you now? So that might be an issue down the road. But ultimately, letting the copyright uh, multiply and have the parodies and have you know the appearances and other videos on on YouTube. That's a choice by the copyright owner. The copyright owner still has the right to shut it down. Of course. So the important thing to keep in mind is uh, really just to, to be careful and avoid these these you know dangerous areas if you can, because you and I are not part of <laughs> IKEA's marketing department or Coca-Cola's marketing department, and mm-hmm. it is not up to us to de- to decide if what we are doing is helping them sell their product. There, there's 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 a part of of me that I know that a lot of people don't necessarily like, which is being a lawyer. I'm conservative on these particular issues. And there's a reason for that, because I don't like seeing my clients get sued. It is much easier to not get sued <laughs> than it is to defend a lawsuit. I, I, I had a fun debate with, um, with an attorney last year who I met. And um, we, were talking about, we were talking about video games. And we're talking about, you know, what do you name a video game? How do you get it out there? And, and he said, you know what? For a smaller company, I'd tell them, name it whatever they want. See if they get caught and and just throw it you know and just throw it out there and i don't particularly like that because when it comes to software a lot of software companies are voracious in their sure. in their appetites for enforcing their intellectual property and i don't think it's good advice to tell a software company ah, yeah just just put it out there i i don't think that's good advice because i think that's inviting an infringement lawsuit. I, I agree completely. And honestly, a startup is the kind of company that is least able to defend themselves in a situation That's true. like that. You know, you don't hey. want to put yourself where in a situation where the viability of your business could be called into question. His his argument to me was that because it's a startup, they're least likely to be found. That's not necessarily true. And I agree with you. It's not. I do agree. It's not necessarily true. Because Angry company. Birds was also a startup. <laughs> yes, it was. Yes, it was. So what's our so what's our right. final point on, on this episode? The, the the fifth way that bloggers get themselves sued is everybody's favorite defamation. Yes. Defamation, libel, I, I <laughs> etc. etc. Um, this particular legal theory when we're dealing with bloggers. Okay. And the reason is one: the truth in the United States, not in the United Kingdom, by the way, but in the U.S., the truth is an absolute defense to defamation. And if there is a blogger who is giving his or her opinion about a product, that opinion is truth as the blogger sees it. However, a lot of companies are going after bloggers who write bad reviews Mm -hmm. of products. We're finding that... um, not only is is defamation invoked, but by the way, also trademark infringement and dilution are invoked as well for bad reviews. And in this particular, you know, in these particular instances, I think we're finding that the bloggers are winning. But I'll tell you, it's not a fun fight. Sure. And in this particular instance, it's. I, I just I just uh, don't I, I'm not sure exactly what else to say because to me you're not defaming a company if you say that a certain product you know fails to meet certain expectations. Defamation is purposefully saying something that is untrue that hurts a company's reputation 
or or a person's reputation. But in this particular case, we're talking about businesses. Mm -hmm. And and a lot of businesses have acted poorly to negative reviews online. And I don't like it. And But since we're talking about being conservative, and since we're talking about protecting yourself from a lawsuit, I would say to do two things especially if you're a blogger who's putting out product reviews. One, have an attorney in your back pocket who handles these particular matters and make sure that the attorney just peeks at the blog every once in a while. It doesn't have to be a thorough review. It's just have the attorney peek and just say, look, do you see something that off the top of your head sets off bells, alarms, and whistles? Makes sense. And two, try to be as eloquent as you can in your writing. I have found that bloggers get themselves in trouble by holding themselves to a lower writing standard. And, and I would say if you're eloquent in a review that's going to be negative... And you're able to say, here's what I liked, here's what I didn't like, here's what I thought could be fixed, here's what I thought could have been better, then it doesn't feel like defamation. So make sure when you're writing a, writing a negative review that it doesn't feel like definition, defamation. Excuse me. And I think the blogger will come away with a better product as well as a lower chance of being sued. Now look, everything we've talked about here is not 100%. You could still get sued. Well, sure, anybody can sue for any reason. This is just a matter of trying to decrease your uh, yes, exposure. Yes, of course. And in, in these particular instances, I think it's important to take all of this as a whole in writing a blog. You know, mm-hmm. avoiding the, the names of other you know, companies, um, discussing, you know, discussing a name when you can't do it any other way, making sure that pictures are licensed, making sure that the content of pictures is proper, making sure that the music is licensed. If you need music, I need music. (laughs) (laughs) I need an intro and an outro. Indeed you do. So at some point, we'll be getting the proper license for that. And also making sure that when you're doing a negative review, it doesn't cross that line into defamation. Sure. But I would say with that negative review, make sure you write it as eloquently as possible. Because the idea here is for everyone to avoid that. And it's not 100%. You're not always going to avoid it. But I think in this, I think these are helpful tips to make that blog better and to make your defenses better when somebody complains. Agreed. Now, going back to the the negative reviews, just to clarify, uh, there there were quite a few stories in the news not long ago Mm -hmm. about people being um, fined for negative reviews because they had signed up with services or with websites, and it was in the terms of service that if they left a negative review, they could be fined. What we were just talking about is completely separate from that. Absolutely. And I would say those stories... Uh, stem from what you just said, signing up with a uh, service that has terms of use. The terms of use of any piece of software is a contract that is legally enforceable. And if that terms of use says that you are not allowed to put up a negative review on any of our member products because you're signing up for these member products one way or the other, and you're caught, and if you do put up a negative review, it's you know it's it's a fine. Sure, it's been enforced. Inherently, I understand that a lot of people don't like that particular ruling, but you can contract, and you can agree. And my advice there is read terms of use, the terms of service of any service that that you sign up for. Because if it relates to, mem- you know, having 
uh, access to goods and having member products, then I think you'll understand better how to deal with this particular service. Of course. And and you need to avoid those pitfalls. But but yeah, that comes from just not reading terms of use and terms of service. Which, let's be honest, most people, <laughs> the Don't. overwhelming majority of people aren't reading terms of use. Exactly. And that's a mistake in and of itself. But anyway, to just to sum up the episode as a whole, it, it seems to me that really what you're saying is that the internet is no longer the wild, wild west. We don't have the anonymity that we used to have. And, you know, technology has progressed to the point where, you know, someone who's in charge of IP for a large corporation like Coca-Cola can get Google alerts delivered to their inbox immediately Every single time their brand is is mentioned, Getty has an image search engine that will find their images. Yeah, I mean, and I'm not here to to single out any one particular company or corporation because all big companies companies have um, mechanisms in place to, to, to show when their trademarks come up on the internet and and, and all and, these and many small businesses as well you and i both know small businesses that have gotten sued over trademarks from you know near and far just because the internet makes it easier yeah to I, find right so so okay and a lot of small businesses also don't care <laughs> and they get sued because they don't care exactly. so m- my point is that there is you know, software out there that makes it easy for trademarks to be found, for uh, copyrighted material to be found, and therefore they will be found if they're online. And so the, you know, the way that a blogger can protect him or herself is what I said earlier. <laughs> make sure that that the use is protected. Make sure, or is, make sure that trademark use is, is properly protected make sure the copyrights are either secured or licensed and make sure that that content doesn't step over the lines and and you know have an attorney review not doesn't have to be every single time but make sure there are periodic reviews so that you as the blogger can understand in what direction to take your blog and also to make sure that you're just not stepping over the line sure that makes a lot of sense all right, Michelle, if people want to find you, how can they find you? Very difficult to find. I can be found at michelle-carter.com, and that's Michelle with two L's, the way it's intended to be. <laughs> and I'm Anthony Verna, I'm partner at Kravitz and Verna PLLC. You can find me at kravitzverna.com. Thanks very much. We'll see you next time.